One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. So there's a rule I have in how to discover individuals that are worth studying or interesting within Sufism. Uh, the very critical and strict 14th century scholar Ibn Taymiyyah uh, often wrote works in which he very strongly attacked and criticized certain Sufis as being unbelievers or heretics because they held, in his opinion, very radical views. And so the rule is that anyone that he mentions by name in those writings those are the interesting ones. And people that he mentions include Ibn Arabi, Sadr al-Din Qunawi, Ibn al-Farid, al-Shushtari, and perhaps the most controversial of them all, the one that Ibn Taymiyyah and many others see as the most radical and most dangerous, Ibn Sabain. His full name was Muhammad ibn Abdul Haq ibn Sabain, and Ibn Sabain literally means son of 70, which is obviously a rather unusual name. He has come down to us as a very controversial figure, one that is famous for holding and spreading radical views that interpreted the Islamic doctrine of oneness in a very monistic way, a doctrine which he liked to call Radat al-Mutlaqa, or absolute unity. He was born in 1216 or 1217 in Al-Andalus, and specifically in the Rikot Valley, which is part of the larger region of Murcia, where he also grew up and spent his formative years. This, of course, directly places him close to probably the most famous Andalusian Sufi, Ibn Arabi, who was also from Murcia and only a generation or two older than Ibn Sabain. Because of their close proximity, both regionally but also in terms of similar lives and even teachings, the great Sheikh al-Akbar ibn Arabi often overshadows ibn Sabain completely. And this is a shame because ibn Sabain is a very unique and fascinating figure that, in my opinion, deserves a lot more attention. We talked about Andalusia a lot in my previous videos. The 12th to 13th centuries was an especially vibrant time in which some of the most famous figures in history appeared here and also elsewhere as well. Uh, Sufism, or 
mysticism was also flourishing in this region and often was mixed with more speculative philosophy or speculative thought in general, uh, which tried to create a kind of synthesis between the two. Like, for example, in the famous novel Hai Ibn Yaqsan by the philosopher Ibn Tufayl. One could generalize a bit and say that the Sufis of the Western tradition in Spain and Western North Africa was more speculative in nature and implemented more philosophical um, terms and ideas, whereas its eastern counterpart in places like Persia was more focused on psychological development and poetic expressions rather than speculative prose. The speculative and esoteric tendencies of their mysticism in this region seems to have been greatly influenced by the Greek tradition and indeed very much by Hermeticism. Later chroniclers talk about the Sufis of Al-Andalus and mentions that Hermeticism is especially strong among them. Writers like Ibn al-Khatib and indeed Ibn Khaldun mentions a group of people from the so-called Wadi Rikut, that is the Rukot Valley, who held radical views of absolute unity or Hwadat al-Mutlaqa, and were also apparently very strongly influenced by Hermeticism. These accounts were written by people who were often very critical of this group or the ideas that they held, so it should be taken with a grain of salt. But it is very interesting that they and many others seem to mention this people of the Wadi Rikut as a unique category. It seems then that the Rikot Valley at this time was a place of great activity and an intellectual environment where a certain group of Sufis resided and held uh, what seems to be uh, radical views of, with certain monistic tendencies. Now, I would argue that probably the views held by the people in the Wadirikut were a locus of larger tendencies in the region of Spain generally, but as I said, much more research needs to be done on this subject. As we've seen, Ibn Sabain was born and raised in the Rikot Valley, and thus it is highly likely that it is this intellectual environment and the masters from this region that he frequented that was the highest or largest influence to his own very unique ideas about absolute unity. It seems that these were ideas that were flourishing in Andalusia at the time, and might have had a special prominence in the Rikot Valley. It is therefore my opinion that the similarity between Ibn Arabi's unity of being and Ibn Sabain's absolute unity should not be seen as a result of direct influence, as some have assumed, but instead as a result of sharing a common intellectual environment in medieval Spain in which these ideas were held at the time. Ibn Sabain's spiritual masters include a man called Ibn Ahla and Ishaq ibn al-Mara'a and Ibn Dahak, all being supposed people of the Wadi Rikut. Other than this, Ibn Sabain seems to have received a wide and proper education in both science and philosophy and came to master both of these fields. Indeed, he became famous in his life for his incredible intellectual knowledge and rhetorical skills, and even those of his enemies, who were very highly critical of him, even they had to humbly admit to this fact. Uh, he also received an education in the religious sciences like the Quran and Hadith and jurisprudence. He was from a well-off family, but later in his life chose a more ascetic life as a Sufi, which is often a common theme in these kinds of biographies. It seems that in his 20s he had already cultivated a mystical and philosophical status to the point that he had a devoted group of followers. By the time he was around 30 years old, he left his home region with his group of followers, called the Sabinia, to Granada. From early on it seems like Ibn Sabain's thought was characterized by a leaning towards both Sufism or mysticism and philosophy, and often with a kind of synthesis of the two. 
He held very highly some of the philosophers and was particularly fond of Hermes, as we will see soon, but was nonetheless a Sufi through and through at the same time, concerned with spiritual practices and the cultivation of intimacy with God through intuitive experience. Said Hussein Nasser writes, quote, Ibn Sabain embodies that synthesis between the practical spiritual life and intellectual doctrine that one finds in Ibn Masara. He would exclaim his controversial doctrines on God and the world early on, the main thrust of which is that God is the sole reality of existing things, that reality is absolute oneness, and that the world of multiplicity is an illusion. This didn't go down too well with the local sultans or the conservative jurists, and he was very much attacked for these ideas for most of his life. It may have been for this reason that he chose to relocate outside of his home region of Andalusia to the city of Ceuta, where he lived for a few years undisturbed. It is here, while in Ceuta, that he writes some of the most famous and important of his literary works. For example, it is here that he composes his by far most famous work, which is called The Sicilian Questions. Now, The Sicilian Questions is a work that was written as answers in response to certain philosophical or theological questions asked by the Christian Emperor Frederick II. So it's a very fascinating document. This is the only work by Ibn Sabain that has been completely translated into English and is also the main reason that he is even known or famous today. But he also wrote his probably most important mystical philosophical work while staying in the city, which is known as Bud al-Arif, and in which he explicates his ideas in full force. It is said that this book angered the authorities so much that he was forced to flee again, but most likely it was due to other political reasons and changes in leadership and so on. He would then continue to relocate continuously to different cities, but always having to flee or relocate eventually, maybe because of his uh, controversial views. He lived for a while in Algeria, where he met and became a master of the Sufi poet and his most famous student, Abul Hassan al-Shushtari. Shushtari was actually older than Ibn Sabain and was at the time a follower of the tariqa of Abu Madian. But when he met Ibn Sabain, he is famously said to have said to al-Shushtari, quote, If it is paradise you desire, then go with Sheikh Abu Madian. If it is the master of paradise you desire, then let's begin. After this, al-Shushtari became his student and was devoted to him for the rest of his life, as would I if someone ever said that to me, obviously. Ibn Sabain then lived in Cairo, Egypt for a while, where he gathered more followers, but it wasn't until he reached the city of Mecca sometime around the year 1254 that he finally found his permanent home. Here, he became very close with the governor of Mecca himself, Sharif Abu Numay ibn Abi Sa'id. Ibn Sabain may even have become his spiritual master, which would of course be very significant. He spent his last 20 years under the patronage of the Sharif of Mecca until his mysterious death in the year 1270 at the young age of 54. Now, there is controversy surrounding his death as the common narrative is that he committed suicide by slitting his wrists. But in my opinion, and according to many other scholars, this is most likely not true as the only sources we have for this is written by people who were openly hostile to him and thus is obviously trying to paint him in a very negative light as committing a very grave sin. Some instead claim that he may have been poisoned, which could of course be true since he did still have a number of enemies around the Muslim world, or he may have fallen ill, we simply don't know. But since his death he has nonetheless become a very infamous figure, greatly loved by his followers and vehemently criticized and attacked by his enemies and later critics. 
His thoughts and teachings can be said to be rather syncretic. As I mentioned earlier, he was highly educated and he seems to have had an impressive intellectual capacity. Um, thus, in his writings, he showcases a great mastery of both philosophy and mysticism and tries to apply both of them. But two things need to be pointed out here. Firstly, while he is highly philosophical, it is a bit uncertain if he can be firmly placed within the Falsafa tradition. He held very highly some philosophers like Plato and the Muslim Al-Farabi, but was highly critical of others like Ibn Rushd and even Ibn Sina, both of whom he thought was misguided. He used and applied the Aristotelian tradition in his thinking, especially in the Sicilian questions, but he was also critical of this kind of philosophy as it conflicted with his ideas of absolute unity. Instead, Ibn Sabain appears to have been formulating a new kind of illuminative philosophy uh, that he sometimes referred to as the Hikmat al-Mashriq, the Eastern wisdom, which may perhaps be referring to people like Surawardi and his philosophy. In this mystical philosophical project, he seems to be especially fond of Hermes, who is often equated with the prophet Idris in Islam. Indeed, in the introduction to his most important work, the Buddha al-Arif, he praises Hermes as the greatest of sages. Quote, I petitioned to God to propagate through me the wisdom that Hermes Trismegistos revealed in the earlier ages, the spiritual reality that prophetic guidance has made beneficial, the happiness that is sought out by every person of guidance, the light by which every fully actualized intellectual wishes to be illuminated, the knowledge that will no longer be broadcast or disseminated from Hermes in future ages, and the secret from which and through which and for the sake of which the prophets were sent. This lends some credibility to the idea expressed earlier that Hermeticism was especially prominent in Spain or in the Ricote Valley in particular. This isn't to say that Hermeticism was something unique though. Hermeticism was widely popular and used by philosophers and other intellectuals in the Muslim world generally, but here we see a larger emphasis on Hermes than what is perhaps common among the Muslim philosophers. Secondly, we must remember that while Ibn Sabain did attempt to create a kind of synthesis between intellectual philosophical knowledge and mystical experience, the two are not equal in any way. Mysticism, what we could call the Sufi aspect, dominates his writings and holds by far the most weight, but is complemented by philosophy. And Scott Johnson writes, quote, This is demonstrated in Ibn Sabain's emphasis on the priority of mystical verification, taqiq, of discursive knowledge, and more expressively in his articulation of the doctrine of absolute unity, wadat al-mutlaqa. What Ibn Sabain emphasizes the most is a direct transcendence of plurality and experience of God's unity within ourselves, what he calls taqiq al-tawheed. This is also the root of his criticism of Aristotelian or peripatetic philosophy, even if he does employ it sometimes himself. Aristotelian philosophy looks at the world through plurality, when in truth there is only absolute oneness. He himself says, quote, While studying the diverse branches of science, the true Sufi sees them as a whole as mere preliminaries. The sole end which he pursues is arrival at the contemplation of the unity of the divine essence and the negation of the world and his own self. This very conveniently brings us back to that very central aspect of his thought, what he likes to call and what others call the doctrine of absolute unity or wadat al-mutlaqa.
He likes to use this term himself, and he also employs many other terms for this kind of philosophy. Uh, very interestingly, we have seen that Ibn Sabain is often associated with Ibn Arabi. Ibn Arabi's doctrine is, of course, as you know, known as Wadat al-Wujud, or the unity of being. But as I stated in the video about Ibn Arabi, he never actually uses this term himself at all. But it was generations later that this came to be used as a technical term. And what is very fascinating is that Ibn Sabain actually does use the term Wadat al-Wujud, the unity of being, to describe his own philosophy, and he was a contemporary of Ibn Arabi. The similarities between Ibn Sabain and Ibn Arabi are many, to the point that many have said or claimed that they are actually saying the same thing, but in different ways. In Ibn Sabain's absolute unity, there is nothing but God. He often exclaims in his writings, Allahu Faqat, God only or only God. Everything in the world, including the individual self, are illusions that are non-existent, nothingness, and only God is in reality. It is characterized by an emphasis on taking flight over all multiplicity, even the many divine names, and instead an intense fixation upon the divine essence or avat in itself, which is all of reality. All the intellectual sciences only really lead to this affirmation. Quote, Man begins to desire the incomparable object, and he enters into the scientific paths which we have previously mentioned. Advancing and meditating as he will, he becomes aware that everything is but an attribute. He then acquires the conviction that the attribute of multiplicity is contained within the essence of unity, and that this is the absolute truth to which he must ascend, before which the world has no reality. He progresses from there to the reflection of the object of his desire in the world, but no longer finding there the unity for which he searches. He abandons everything, the world and the reflection of God in the world. Recognizing the nothingness of everything that he has acquired through the preliminary sciences, he understands the very voice of reality. Even when Ibn Sabain speaks in philosophical terms, like dividing the world into objects or uh, different realities or gradations of existence, this is all really conceptual and isn't real in the ultimate sense. In truth, there is only oneness, absolute oneness. There can be no distinction between things at all. Everything is one. So far, this may seem pretty similar to the school of Ibn Arabi and his doctrines, and it very much is. But Ibn Sabain and his followers were a bit more radical, at least in their expressions of these ideas. While Ibn Arabi saw the world as relatively real and as being the reflections of God's infinite attributes and having all their being from God, Ibn Sabain viewed the world and everything in it as an illusion. He didn't hold the idea that we are to know God through his reflections in the world, but that we are to pass over the names until we see only God in his true essence. Michel Shodkiewicz explains the difference between these two in very, I think, understandable terms, even if I think he overestimates the difference between the two a little bit. Quote, Despite occasional use of similar formulas, sometimes exactly the same formulas, the differences between Ibn Arabi and Ibn Sabain are fundamental. A metaphysic whose center is a divine solipsism has no circumference. For Ibn Arabi, God is the being of everything that is. For Ibn Sabain, God is everything that is. The God of Ibn Arabi is the lamp of the heavens and the earth, that of Ibn Sabain is a sun without rays whose incandescence is in itself its own end. 
to many, these were very radical ideas. And indeed they are radical in the sense that the unity or oneness that it expresses is a radical unity or a radical oneness. He did synthesize mysticism and philosophy, but once God's essence or the oneness of reality is realized, there is no longer any room for speculation or discursive science. Quote, I was first led to say I have never seen a thing without seeing God behind it. Then to say, which is closer to the truth, I have never seen a thing without seeing God with it. Then finally to say, I have never seen a thing without seeing God before it. Now I can only say, he, he, he. While these ideas of his were very controversial and he was attacked by many scholars, we shouldn't forget that he was also very much loved and admired by many others as well. The Muslim world at this time, or in any time, was not some homogenous entity where Ibn Sabain was an anomaly. There were many other similar movements and teachers, and many who considered his ideas to be perfectly acceptable, even if they probably weren't in a majority. For example, we should remember that the Sharif of Mecca himself was a close friend of Ibn Sabain and may even have been his devoted student. And that, according to Vincent Cornell, quote, when he eventually moved to Mecca, pilgrims from the Islamic West sought him out like no one else. The very bad reputation that Ibn Sabahin has had and still has can very much be attributed to his enemies painting him in a very bad light. Descriptions and opinions that have to some degree still survived to this day. This includes calling him things like a pantheist or heretic or hermetic philosopher who disregarded the Islamic law, even though he clearly states in his writings that, well, states the importance of following the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad and the Quran and so on. The claim that he committed suicide has also become sort of semi accepted knowledge, even though it most likely isn't true. There is even a fictional novel written about him called A Muslim Suicide by Ben Salem Himish, which I hear is very good, by the way. The Sabiniya was run by his student al-Shushtari in Egypt and by a man called Ibn Hud in Damascus and survived through their lines. Some of them may have been assimilated into the school of Ibn Arabi which grew to be a lot more influential and very much eclipsed the influence of Ibn Sabain who is relatively forgotten today. Nonetheless, Ibn Sabain is remembered as one of the foremost representatives of Andalusian Sufism or mysticism and philosophy, even if he isn't as well remembered as his contemporary Ibn Arabi. As I've said in the beginning, we know fairly little about him and his school, and the same can be said about the Rikot Valley and the Sufism that was practiced in Islamic Spain at the time in general. I think there's some really interesting stuff that can be discovered here if we dive deeper into it. Who were these people of the Wadi Rikut? How did they influence Ibn Sabain? And can Ibn Sabain and Ibn Arabi said to be baptized in the same intellectual waters that were the currents in the region at the time? And to what degree was Hermeticism influential on this movement? I think further research into this subject could give us a lot in terms of our understanding of Sufism or the history of the Islamic world in general. Ibn Sabain may have been a very strange figure. His philosophical mysticism expresses realities and experiences that are very profound and striking and often without compromise. But at the same time, and as he recognizes himself, he is ultimately trying to explain things or experiences which cannot be explicated in words as they are completely beyond human conception. Therefore, the following words by Ibn Sabain become especially haunting and telling. Quote, he who says I mocks himself by comparison. He who says he lies. Only he who keeps silent is saved. I'll see you next time.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.